We've all heard the expression, get a life, right? Get a life. People will say that. They'll say, get a life. And it's usually said in a derogatory tone, something kind of like this. Why don't you just get a life? You know what I mean? The inference is that the person doesn't have much of a life and they need to do something, something else. Because what they are presently doing doesn't represent or isn't producing much of a life. What the expression is really saying is, get a new way to live your life or get a new lifestyle. Because what we learn in Scripture is that life is given we can't just get a life. You can say that, get a new life, get a new way of doing life, perhaps get a new lifestyle, but to actually get a life, well, that's something that we learn in Scripture that is given to us, that life is given from God. We learn this principle early on in the Bible. In fact, it's a central principle of our text tonight. God is the giver of life, and he has given us the principles to live that life as well. Tonight, we're going to look at this section in Genesis 2, which in many cases is a recap of things already discussed, some things already discussed in chapter 1. But what is given is the setup for this great transition in the book of Genesis. From the creation of the world, the creation of the earth, and the creation of man to the ongoing generations of man, the fall of man, and the history of man, and the unfolding of God's plan of redemption. So we're kind of in this transition section tonight in the book of Genesis. Tonight we'll look at the principle that God is the life giver. And he has provided, not only has he given life, but he's provided a place for us to live that life, and he's given us a path to walk in that life as well. And so let's dive into this section tonight. God, the life giver, first he gave us a life. Let's pick it up, verse four of chapter two of Genesis. It says this, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Let's stop right there. God is the life giver. He gave us life. Every single person that's here tonight, every single person that's ever lived, he's given us life. He's the life giver. This section starts by saying, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that they were created. Now, here's another uh, use, another uh, definition of the word day, the word yom, and so it's speaking of a day, the day of the Lord. We kind of use that in our modern English, or, or English is kind of saying back in the day, or back, you know, in the day that, you know, this, this happened in your life. And maybe it wasn't talking about a specific day, but it was talking about, you know, a, a, a period of time when something happened. And so this is 
the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when God made the heavens and the earth. And so really, this, is taking, this, this verse is taking us all the way back to Genesis 1.1. What's that? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the day that God made the heavens and the earth and all the rest of the stuff as it unfolded. Now remember, we have this creation verse in verse 1, and then we came to verse 2, and we found that the earth was kind of in this devastated state. It was, form- it was uh, formless, and it was void. Uh, as if to say it was a waste, it was a wasteland, it was empty. It was a waste, and it was empty. And so we have this creation of the heavens and the earth in verse 1. Verse 2, we come to it. It's formless and void. In other words, it was a waste and there were no creatures in it. So these verses here in chapter 2, specifically verse 5 and 6, talk about that state of the earth, really what we're looking at in chapter 1, verse 2, when, when it said, now the earth had become formless and void, and water was over the face of the deep. And so verses 5 and 6 really describe the reality of that state of the earth that we see in verse 2. There was no plants at that particular time in the earth. There was no herbs. There was no man. There was nothing. Water covered the ground. That's what we saw. Water covering the entire surface of the earth. That's what we find. That's where we find the earth in verse 2. Now, this particular translation and many of our modern translations have kind of gave rise to many speculations, as, a, as it were, to these particular verses of Scripture, especially of, you know, what's, what's he really talking about going back to the, you know, there was no herb, there was no plant, there was no man to till the ground. What's God's purpose? What's God's uh, plan here? And then this whole thing, but there was a mist that was over the water. I've heard and I have personally read some wild interpretations of that, um, that there's no way on earth I'm even remotely getting into here tonight, amen? But I think it's actually pretty simple what's what's being said here. It's taking us back to to verse one when God, back in the day when God created the heaven and earth and it's taking us back to verse two when there was nothing going on on the earth. And there was no plant, there was no, uh, herb, there was no man to till the ground, and there was a, a mist over the water. The, the, I think the English word mist there is kind of the culprit of kind of some uh, speculation as it pertains to this particular verse. The, verse. the word there for spring in the Hebrew could also be translated spring. And if you translated it spring, you could you could suggest in an interpretation that what it's really talking about is the waters that were coming up from the, from the depths, from the spring, and we know that that's how much of the water was there to begin with, that there is this great deep. We learned about that in verse 2 of chapter 1, the tohom, the great deep. We, we, know it as, in, we know it in the Hebrew term, the tohom. We know it in the, the, the Greek term, the abyss or the abuso. Okay, and so there's this great deep. We will see it when we get to the, to the flood. Just in a few chapters, we'll see that it wasn't only the rains that came down that flooded the earth, but it was the, 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 the fountains of the great deep that burst open. And so if you, if you take that interpretation, this could be as simple as saying that there was waters covering the face of the earth, which takes you right back to verse two, and here we are, and there's no need for 
some grandiose speculations as to what really God is trying to communicate. This is talking about what happened in the beginning when God created the heaven and earth, and then when there was nothing going on on the earth, and water, a spring, had covered the face of the ground. And, uh, and so I think that that's at least um, you know, solid enough and, 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 and uh, something that you can consider as an interpretation. The, the, the springs covered the ground. So the statements really, in effect, say and communicate the same thing that chapter 1, verse 2 does. The earth was not habitable, but we saw in the week of creation God bringing the earth from a place of inhabitability to a place that was not only habitable, but habited, inhabited. Amen? It was not only habitable, but it was inhabited. There was creatures all across the, the skies, the seas, the lands, and then, of course, there's man. There's man. Now he creates man. And this is where we get to here in this verse, in verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So there are two words here that describe the making of man. We, we already talked about the making of man in chapter 1, but here we're kind of looking at it from a different standpoint. Back in chapter 1, we talked about uh, man being made in the image of God, in the likeness of God. We talked about what that was, the idea of man being created as the image. And if you want to go back and listen to that podcast, sorry for the audio on that, but the only audio that we caught that particular night was the audio from the camera. So that's, of all the podcasts, it's a little raw, but you can get through it and get the material. But it was a great study that night because we talked about the image of God and what it was all about. And it was, it was a powerful, powerful uh, night there as we talked about being created as the image and that we that mankind was created to image God to be in that place um, kind of that vice regent that that king that, that that with the mandate to rule over the earth and it's an incredible incredible study there but here we're looking at a different aspect of the creation of man we're looking at uh, we have two words here describing the making of man, really two verbs, two verbs. And the first one is formed, that he formed man. Look at that verse seven. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. The word formed expresses the relation really of, a, of an artisan, of a craftsman. When you think of somebody forming something, you think of some, somebody of, of an artiste, right? Someone who's forming, fashioning a craftsman, as a craftsman would take material and, and form something and make something, and, and I, I, I can't do any of that, man. I, I wish I could do something like that, but I'm just not, I can't form or fashion anything. You know, I mean, I can barely form or fashion like the, you know, the covers on the bed after, you know, the night's sleep and stuff and get Mary Jo to be happy with the fact that I've put the pillows back in the right place and all that stuff, all, you know, 42 pillows and all the rest of it. And, um, but uh, I can't do it. But you know, God is an awesome artiste, isn't he? And look at creation, look at the fish. I'll tell you what, you, you go down underwater, you do some scuba, you do some, uh, 
Snorkeling, yes, thank you. You do some of that, and you go, wow, it's a whole new world. You start singing, like, you know, Disney songs and stuff, you know, because it's a whole new world down there, you know, and it's incredible what, what you see. And, you know, God is an artiste, and he formed the man as a craftsman. He took material. He formed man from the dust, it says. He formed man from the dust from the ground. We're, we're, man is made from the ground. We're literally made. God was going to make man, and he said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get some dirt, you know. We're going to get some dust. We're going to get some dirt, and we're going to make man, you know. And it's interesting because the Hebrew word for man, anybody know what it is? Adam, correct. It's Adam, but we, it's actually pronounced Adam, and so it's, it's the name of the first man, but it's also the word for man. And so Adam, the word for ground is Adama, Adama. And so really, even in the word for ground, we have the idea of man being taken from Adama, the ground. And, and so people, I'm here to tell you, we are of the earth. <laughs> we, are, we are of the earth. We're earthy. We're earthy. But that's what makes the salvation of man so significant. When we're born in the flesh, we're born of this earthiness, this, this substance that was dust, right? But when we're reborn, we're not reborn of the earthy stuff. We're reborn from heaven above. In fact, born again actually is born from above. And so when we come into the world the first time, we're born from down here. When we come into the kingdom of God, we're born from up there by the will of the Father. And I think that that's a, a kind of a great little picture of, of salvation and the salvation of man. Now, that, so that's formed, formed that he formed man. Now, he, next, he breathed. He breathed, verse 7, into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And so he was formed by the dust of the earth and, he and God breathed into the nostrils of man. And this, to me, is, a, is an incredible picture of God's relationship to man. Breathed is a word that expresses the warm and per personal nature of God creating man. If God is breathing into the nostrils of man, it's, it's almost, it paints a picture of this face-to-face -face in, intimacy with man. Here you have the, the Father breathing. Uh, you have God breathing into the nostrils of man. And, and, and I think it's the, the picture is of that face-to-face the -face intimacy. It's almost like, this is almost, it's like a picture of the kiss of life. It's, a, it's the kiss of life. I mean, I know Darlene Sheck wrote the book Kiss, of Hef, kiss from Heaven or Kiss of Heaven. This is, this is like the kiss of life. And, and um, you know, I, I know if you, you're not too comfortable with men kissing men. I mean, it, it goes around. You tra do some traveling. You know, get off of this continent and get onto some other continents. And there's a lot of kissing going on. Amen. And, uh, and, and God gave us the, the, really the kiss of life. He breathed into man. He breathed into his nostrils. And uh, it paints an incredible picture. It describes the significance that this was an act of giving. To, to breathe into the nostrils of man is, is just really just giving of that breath of life. From It's kind of like if you uh, pictured like a... Um, 
an emergency situation where you had to do kind of a, what do they call it, mouth-to-mouth, you know, resuscitation, you know, and, 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 and I was actually at one time uh, certified by the, uh, the American Red Cross. I think every high school student, raise your hand, yeah, you have to go. They come in for a few weeks and they say, well, you're going to do this and you're back there on dummies, you know, practicing how to do, you know, mouth-to-mouth. And I think I remember that there was one technique where you literally covered the whole mouth and nose with, as you breathed uh, into the mannequin, you know, and thank God they didn't have us, you know, trying that out on our, you know, fellow students or whatever. So, you know, <laughs> that was a good thing. But anyways, you see the, the intimacy, you see the giving aspect of that. And so the giving of life is, is, is what we see uh, here. This made man, the giving of life, this breathing uh, of, of life into man transformed his form into a living being, literally a living soul. This made man a spiritual being with a capacity to know God, to, to relate to God, to serve God, to have fellowship with God. And so God breathed life into man. The word for breath in Hebrew is the word ruach, and it, it, it imitates the very sound of breath and it's, this, it's the same word for spirit as in the case of both ancient Greek, pneuma. So you have uh, spirit and breath is the same in Hebrew. And it's the same, the word for spirit and breath in Greek is the same word. And the same word in Latin for breath and spirit, which is spiritus. So you have ruach, you have pneuma, and you have spiritus. And, and so there's this idea of the, the breath of God, the spirit of God. He breathed into man, and he became a living being. God created man by putting his breath, his spirit, within him. Wow, what an incredible picture. So we see the, the giving of life to man, and it's an incredible thing. So, so God made man, and he formed him from the ground, and he breathed into him and gave him the, the, the gift of life, and so he, he gave mankind life. Secondly, tonight, he gave us a place to live. Pick it up, verse 8. It says this, The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the ground, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of the land is good. The bedellum and the onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gion. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hedekel. It is the one which goes towards the east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God gave life to man. Secondly, he gave him a place to live. He gave him a place to live. So within this earth, this habitable earth that God had made, 
to be habited, that he's making man as his image, forming him from the dust, breathing into him the breath of life. Now he's going to take a piece of the earth and he's going to give man a special place, a place to man. And so what did God do? God made a garden. He made a garden. There's a motif in Scripture, and we, you will come through it in your readings. You will come through this, these motifs of heaven where God dwells. And there are really two motifs of heaven where God dwells. One is a garden, and the second one is a mountain. So you'll see these motifs of God dwelling in the garden, and, and it's a picture, it's a picture of, of God's dwelling place, the, the, the garden. I mean, when we get to heaven, it's like a garden. Read the last chapter of the book. I mean, it's like we're back to the garden. It's, it's, this is where God dwells. He dwells in a garden. But also the mountain. So there's a garden and a mountain, the, these two terms. And so, um, so these are the, the motifs that uh, you have of heaven. And what God did was he, he put a little piece of heaven where he dwells, and he, and he put it on the earth. So he planted a garden. He dwells in a garden. He dwells in a mountain. He dwells on high. He's the one that's on the sides of the north in the heights, right? And that's why the pagans always put their, worship, their temples on mountains. And if they didn't have any mountains, they built man-made structures that looked like mountains, okay? So that's really what the pyramid is. That's what the ziggurat is. So when you go across the earth and you go to Mexico or wherever, Egypt, when you look at the, that stuff, that's, those are man-made mountains because the gods were said to live in the mountains. But we know that the Bible is telling us that God dwelled in, dwelt in the garden and he, dwelt, he dwells in a mountain. And so this, these are the motifs that you will see all the way through, throughout Scripture. So there's a lot of speculation as to exactly where the Garden of Eden was. I mean, you know, if you pull out a map and you say, okay, well, exactly where was the Garden of Eden? And I've got a picture. This is actually a picture that you see in the trailer for the series. And uh, anyway, so some people put the garden, and I like to think that the garden was not as far away from the, from the, from the beach as some would, some would speculate. Amen. You know, because I got to believe, you know, it just, it's my own personal belief, all right? <clears throat> some put it, some put, speculate that it was somewhere in, in and near the Tigris and Euphrates. And when we read about the four river heads that came out of the river that came out of Eden, um, you had the four river heads. One was called Hedekel, the other... Uh, Euphrates, Hedekel is the Tigris. Okay, so the Tigris and the Euphrates. And so some people put the Garden of Eden uh, in and near the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in what they speculate to be whereas modern-day Iraq. And so they'll, they'll say it was you know, somewhere around here, and they point, and it's like, you know, if you look at it on a map, well, that's Iraq, okay? So that's one speculation. Um, there's one Christian scientist that actually has a whole theory about where the Garden of Eden was, and uh, it's directly off the coast of uh, Kuwait in the Gulf of the Gulf there. And if you go right off the coast, he says, you know, this is where this is where the garden was, and he's got a whole uh, you know idea and why he says that. I I, I have a different belief and, and understanding about where the garden 
of Eden was, where the garden of God was, where the mountain of God was that he placed upon the earth. And I believe that it was specifically in and around where the modern place of Israel is. That Israel really is, it's just a special place. I mean, it's a special little, I mean, I don't know why it is other than the sovereignty of God, and that's the place that he picked, and he said, boom, that's where, you know, I'm going to start things. And, um, but, but I believe that, and we're going to get into uh, some reasonings why uh, I, I take that position. Um, but I believe the garden was where modern-day Israel is today. It's the garden of God, and it's the mountain of God. One of the interesting things, and you can go back and look, try to find some pictures of uh, Israel. Go back and try to find the earliest known pictures that exist, and you will see a land that was not a, not a lot going on. You know, you go back to the, the, you know, the earliest pictures, and it looked kind of like a wasteland. Today, it is literally the garden of God. I mean, God, since he has brought the nation of Israel back into the land, that particular land has literally become a garden. And if you, if you see aerial photography of Israel compared to the surrounding areas, it is, it's, it's just literally unbelievable what you see. It's incredible. So, um, so it's the garden of God, the mountain of God. What God did is he placed a little piece of heaven on earth. And now when you look at the mandate, he placed a little piece of heaven on the earth and he put man in that little piece of heaven called the Garden of Eden and he gave him a mandate and he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so the idea was to, to, to be fruitful and multiply and expand, to, to, to take care of the garden, to rule over, to be my vice regent, to be as, you know, made in me as the image. And, and, and so what we're going to do is we're going to have this little piece of heaven and we're just going to keep multiplying and expanding it until heaven on earth just expands and it covers the whole earth. That was, that was kind of the idea. And this is our mandate now. We, we as believers in Christ, Man was first placed in, in this, this holy place, really, this place that was the place where God was going to dwell with man, this, the garden of God, the mountain of God. And as, as we are believers in Christ and we've come into the kingdom, we've come into fellowship with God, we have literally been placed on holy ground. That Christian, where you put the soles of your feet is holy ground because you are a child of the king. You're made as the image of God and you're being conformed into the image of Christ. And where you go, you are standing on holy ground. Amen? It's really, it's sacred space. It's sacred space. Wherever you go, you are literally taking the spirit of God that is in you and he literally breathed heaven into you and now you're walking around, and where you are as a believer is sacred space. It's holy ground. And that's the idea that, that Jesus was talking about. When two or three of you get together in my name, well, then you're really starting to take over. Amen? And I will be in the midst because this is going to be sacred space. It's going to be a sacred assembly. And so 
Please put, your, please put that thought right into the center of your mindset when we come together and gather together. This isn't simply like any other meeting. This isn't like any other gathering of people. We're coming together, two or three gathered in his name, and this literally becomes corporately in Christ sacred space for the worship and glorification of Christ and for the proclamation of his word and for the saving of souls and for the release of his spirit into our lives. And so, whoo, this is, this is sacred space, Amen. It's the place that we worship God with our lives. Wherever you go, with our waking up and our laying down, Christian, it's sacred space. With your work, with your recreation, with your rest, it's sacred space. Now, he gave us life. He gave us a place. And lastly, he gives us a path. He gave man a path. Let's pick it up. Verse uh, 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So he gave us life. He gave us a place to live. He gave us a path to walk. He gave us a path to walk. There was a way to follow and obey God, and there was a way to rebel against God and disobey him. There was a way to follow and obey. There was a way to rebel and disobey. There was a way. That was, it was presented to him in the Garden of Eden. There was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the command went with the, with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. There's no prohibition that we see here of man being placed in the garden and being told not to eat of the tree of life. In fact, the inference here is that go for it. Eat of all the trees. Eat of the tree of life. Have at it. Have at it. Have at it. Go nuts. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that is in the midst of the garden, you shall not eat of it, for in the day that you eat of it, you will die. So God creates the path. He creates the path for man to walk. The one to obey him and the one to disobey him, the one to follow him, and the one to rebel against him. Eating the, free, the fruit of the tree of life gave continued life. That's kind of the idea. If you ate of the tree of life, it seems pretty logical to say that that would continue to add life, right? Eating from the tree of life brought the blessings of life, the blessings of following God, the blessings of being in relationship with God. Now you have the other tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the man was commanded not to eat of it. For when he, when he ate of it, he would surely die. Eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what would it really do? I mean, it's a diso to eat of it would be disobeying a direct command of God. But in eating of it, then the man would then possess the knowledge a, let me say, a carnal knowledge, okay? The, the word in Hebrew is yada, okay? That's to know. And it's, it, it, it is actually to know with experience. And it's actually uh, a, an idiom for 
relations between a man and a wife that, you know, Adam knew his wife. Yeah, he knew his wife. I mean, he, he had experiential knowledge. And so to eat of the tree was to disobey and rebel against God, but it was to have experiential knowledge of evil, of, of, of evil and the face and the curse of death because the command, the, the, the command was that in the day that you eat of it, you will die. What happened is that man did choose death, basically. I mean, that's, there was life, there was the tree of life, and there was the tree that had the command, well, you eat of this one, you'll die. Eat of this one, you'll live. Eat of this one, you'll die. This is the choice that's set before man when he was placed in the garden, life or death, death or life. That's, that's you got two options. There's no other options. Life or death. So the path was laid out for man. The choice was given. Eat the tree of life and live. Eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and face the curse of death. What happened is that man did choose death. They chose the curse of death and they were banished from the garden. We'll get into this as we get into chapter 3. We're just jumping ahead a little bit because we're dealing with the trees. They were banished from the garden. Now when you look at Eden... In the garden, the Garden of Eden, and you look at the land that was promised to Israel and his seed, there's an obvious parallel. When you look at the land, when you look at the promise of God that he gave Abraham, and he said, you know, this, this promised land is going to be, and he gave them the marking points, right? And, and it's this it's, 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 it's massive piece of land. It's, it's way more than just the little sliver that you see um, on the map of Israel today. I mean, it's, it's this big piece of land. And, and, and this whole thing was going to be the promised land. And I think that there's a, a very interesting parallel to, from the Garden of Eden to the promised land, the land that was given to Abraham and his seed. So when you look at the Garden of Eden and how man was banished from the garden. Okay, you ate of the tree, and remember, that we'll get into it in chapter 3, they were, they were directed out of the garden, and there was a cherubim with flaming sword. Cherubim is a, a, a high-ranking, uh, powerful spiritual being, okay? Uh, with flaming sword, cherubim implies more than one, okay? Because I am in the Hebrew is plural. So, um, with flaming sword, what? Genesis tells us, blocking the pathway to the tree of life so as to not continue to eat the life, the tree of life, in the spiritual death that they had brought upon themselves, okay? So when you take a look at the Garden of Eden and how man was banished from the garden, and then God in promising the land to Abraham and his seed, and of course you know that the people, the people of God, Abraham's seed, was not brought into the land, the promised land, until 400 years later after the promise that God gave to Abraham. So 400 years later, God brought them, who? The nation of Israel, into the land. Where did he bring them into the land? Well, if you read the book of Joshua, it tells you that he brought the people across the Jordan River into uh, at Gilgal. And so if you look on the, the map, you can see exactly where that is, okay? He brings them across. You know geographically, you can plot this out on a map, okay? 
So he brings them across the, the River Jordan at Gilgal, and from there, the nation of Israel embarked on a seven-year campaign to rid the land of the enemy that, that this heinous, corrupt, abominable people that God had endured their sins for 400 years until he brought his people in to, to, to literally remove them from the land. They were literally vomited out as a punishment because of the vile things that they were doing. And before you get hairs raised up on the back of your head on that, the warning went to the people of Israel who, who inherited the land that if you do what they did, the land will vomit you out too. Okay, so don't think that, you know, da, 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 you know you, the land will vomit you out because you're not to offer your babies to, to the gods. You're not to offer your children on the burnt arms, the brazen arms of Molech. You're not to do these things and be involved in the types of sexual fornication and then offering the product, the human product of those relationships in that abominable practice. And so they were literally vomited out of the land. So they go on this seven-year conquest, and they completely subdue the land. Is everybody still with me? Okay, all right. Because this is about to get really, really good. <laughs> That's why I was hoping you guys were still with me. At the end of that seven years, if you go through all the way through the book of Joshua, and towards the end of the book of Joshua, you have this where Joshua divvies up the land. He, he, he gives the inheritance to the tribes, Okay, and so each tribe had their, it's like the counties of Israel, right? So you had, you know, you had Judah and you had Benjamin and you had, you know, Issachar and Asher and, you know, it's like, you know, Brevard County, you had Issachar, you know, you had Zebulun, you know, and, and, and so, so they all got their properties. And one of the things after the land was kind of divvied up, given out, God had instructed them to go to a, a particular place and he wanted them to do a particular thing at that, at that place. And the place is called Shechem. And he, and he commanded them at the end of the book of Deuteronomy to go to Shechem. And he wanted, them, he wanted them to do something. He told them to come to Shechem to declare the blessings of following God and to declare the curses in not following God. I want you to pay attention to me because you're going to be glad that you paid attention. If you haven't paid attention up until now, pay attention to this, this right here. They were to declare the blessings of following God, and they were to declare the cursings of not following God. Now, here were the instructions. You can find these curses and blessings in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28. So write that down. You can read it tomorrow for your, for your uh, devotions or Monday or whenever. Here was the instruction. They were to put half of the men of Israel on Mount Ebal and half of the men of Israel on Mount Gerizim. Now, the, the topography of this is you have, you have Mount Ebal and you have Mount Gerizim and you have this little valley in between. And it was a close proximity, so it was literally like in between. You had this kind of in-between amphitheater. It was like, you know, kind of you could watch the band over here and watch the band over here. And, it, you know, it was kind of like that. And it was just that close. And you just had this really, this cleft, this, this valley there in between them. Uh, they were just... Uh, at direct opposites. And the rabbis at this particular location of Shechem, Ebal, and Gerizim, the rabbis believed that this was the exact place that God made the covenant with Abraham to give him the land. And remember, if you go back to the covenant, when God made the covenant, 
he, he, remember they had to cut the sacrifice and they had to go between the sacrifice? And so there was, to, to make a covenant relationship, the, the, the term was cutting a covenant so that you literally had to walk between the, the pieces of the, the sacrifice. And so the, the, so the idea was this idea of cutting the covenant. So the topography of the location actually becomes a topographic picture of, the, of what God was doing in making the covenant with Abraham because he cut the covenant. And so here you have men, the men of Israel, divided on both sides of these mountains, and they're going to declare from both sides to the people in the middle that they're on, from one mountain the men are going to declare the curses of not following God. From the other mountain, they're going to declare the, the blessings for following God. Now, this is incredible. Now, let me read. I want to read some of the curses that would have been read from Mount Ebal, the curses for not following God. Deuteronomy chapter 27, I'm just going to read a couple, couple verses. You can go and read all the, all, both these chapters. Cursed is the one who moves his, lab, his neighbor's landmark. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who makes the blind to wander off the road. And all the people say, Amen. And this continued on and on and on like that. And so cursed is the people who do these things, who choose this particular uh, practices in their life. There's a cursing upon them. Now let me read some of the blessings that would have been read from Mount Gerizim. Pick it up in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 3. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall you be the fruit of your body, the produce of your ground, and the increase of your herds, the increase of your cattle, and the offspring of your flocks. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. And the Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before your face, and they shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. And the Lord will command the blessing on you in the storehouses and in all to which you set your hand. And he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself, just as he swore to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. That's 28 verses 3 through 9. So this was what was happening. After they had come and claimed the land, subdued it, seven-year program, seven-year military program, they had claimed the land. Now they were doing this practice. Now here's the thing. Here's the thing. Just as the rabbis, some of the rabbis believed that that was the exact location that God cut the covenant with Abraham and established him as the father of the faith and giving the land to his seed. The rabbis, there were also rabbis that also taught, and I tend to agree with this, that this location was not only the place where God made his covenant with Abraham, but it was also the location of the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life, I believe, was on Mount Gerizim, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was on Mount Ebal. And so here you have, all these hundreds of years later, after the covenant, you literally have the people of God declaring from the particular places what will happen if you do what happened on this mountain. 
And if you do, if you do what happened on this mountain, then it's going to be great. But if you do what happened on this mountain, there's going to be cursings, there's going to be death, there's going to be things happening. And so it's an incredible, incredible thing. Now let me turn the page a couple chapters to Deuteronomy chapter 30. And I want to pick it up, verse 11, and I want to read this for you. For this commandment, which I command you today, is not too mysterious for you, nor is it too far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. See, I have set you today, before you today, life and good and death and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish and you shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. And I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live and that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice and that you may cling to him for he is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. So what was it that the Lord had set before them? Once again, God had set before them the choice of life and death. Life and death. This is a, another pick from the trailer. So when you see these picks coming up in the trailer, you can just begin to connect all the dots in your head from these studies. Life or death is what is before each person. The choice is yours. He has given you life. He's given you the place to live, and he has set before you a path. And the admonition to you and to every single person, and this is the admonition from the heart of God, there's life and death before you. Choose life. Choose life that you may live. Choose to come and partake of the tree of life. And how you partake of the tree of life is that you come and partake of the Lord Jesus Christ. He went and hung on a tree, literally hung on a tree and became the curse of death for us. That if we partake of him, that we would surely live. Amen? Amen. And so choose life because he is set before you. Now I want to go back to this whole thing of the garden. This is how much that God wants to dwell with you. That he wants to dwell with the people who will come to him. That here was mankind that was banished from the garden. And through several hundred years of working with man, calling a man out of Ur of the Chaldees, him and his wife, changing their names, giving him a son in their old age, and then giving his son a son that would become the father of Israel, bringing them all the way back into the land. And where did he bring them? brought him back to the garden. He brought him back to the garden. 
That's what God wants. God wants you to come back to the garden to be with him. He loves you and he wants, he wants to invite you. He came all the way to this earth and hung on a tree and became a curse. Paul said it for us. He said, the law says he who hangs on a tree is cursed, but he became a curse for us that we might live. And if you come to him and partake of him and accept him in your life, you are going to choose life and you are literally invited back to the garden to dwell with God in the garden, in the mountain of God. And from that moment forward, when you accept him and you come into the kingdom, you are now walking forward, as I said earlier, on holy ground, folks, holy ground. And when we come together, two or three, we begin to take over space. Amen. We begin to take over sacred space for the kingdom of God. Amen. 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 I'll clap for it. Amen. (laughs) I'll clap for that. And if that, I mean, if that don't get you excited and get your get your get your uh you know your blood pumping i'm not sure you know we're gonna have to get out the you know the defibrillators or something he's the life giver and he wants you to choose life he wants you to be in relationship with him and he's done an incredible work of salvation to bring you back he literally brought israel back to the garden he wants to bring you back to the garden and the choice is yours life and death are before you choose life that you may live, and the life giver will give you life. 